welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. We've partnered with Dataversity to provide listeners with 20% off your first training center purchase with promo code AlgmanDL. Go to dataleadershiptraining.com to learn more. Today on episode 65, we welcome Alex Castro. Alex is an aligner of... Start again. Alex is an aligner of execution to strategy for digital transformation and innovation, best selling author and creator and founder of Remscore. Alex believes that the gap between ideas, strategy, and execution is a persistent problem that is sidelining too many high potential digital transformation and innovation growth opportunities. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very excited to be here. So like we do with all our first-time guests, just take a moment and give the audience a bit more about your career before what you're doing now and how those experiences kind of led into what you're doing today. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's funny you ask that question because I'm, I'm in the process of, of uh, writing my second book, um, and I'm taking a little bit more of a, a raw approach to it and, and, and including some of those stories. You know, really, my data journey began when I did my first startup. You know, at, at the time, I was 25 years old. I was um, uh, working for uh, an engineering architectural firm, and, and uh, there was a guy I played basketball with, and he had started a, a data firm uh, in, uh, 1992, 1993. And, um, at the time really, you know, the, the world was not as sophisticated as it is today. And, uh, what we were doing is we were converting all 54,000 USGS topographic maps, uh, into one data store so that you could buy, uh, a topo on demand where it was, you know, prior it was, it was a on-demand service. You'd have to go and get somebody to do the conversion for you on a custom basis. And this way you could just call up and say, look, I need this area. And you'd send it to them for some, uh, engineering utilization, line of sight, cell service, oil and gas, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, what that turned into was quite a journey where we had, not only scanned all of the United States, all 54,000 maps in the United States, but we also did about 120 uh, countries around the world. And the challenges at that time, you got to remember, this is in the early 90s, um, early mid 90s. You know, if you if you had a computer that had 512, you know, megs of RAM, like that was like a big deal. That was like a a big machine, you know, and everything was still on floppy, and we started selling stuff on DVDs, and that was a that was a big piece, but. We had to store all of this information, number one. And number two, you know, really what it came down to was that the reason our company took off so much was that people needed the data and they needed high quality data and they needed it quickly in order to do the analysis, right? So, you know, we all understand that there's three steps to any business or operation in the world. There's capture, analyze, and act. And the capture process just consumes way too much time, resource, um, it affects quality of outcome. And what we found at that time was that in that capture process of producing this mapping data and being able to get it to somebody overnight, it accelerated their business potential. It accelerated their business opportunity. 
And that was really, you know, what opened my eyes to the power of data and the power of quality data and how much of an effect that has on insight and the search for insight. And that, you know, in today's world, um, 30 years you know, later, it's <laughs> a scary thing to say, um, that we are still in that same place, but you know, really the emphasis today is that most leaders, most data leaders, most business leaders want to see the crystal ball, understand where things are going so that they can make better data-driven decisions and have precision in their business. And it just comes down to how much effort resource are you putting into the data capture process and how, what's the quality of that data? Do you think you mentioned you've been doing this for a while? I won't repeat the amount of years again, but the, you've been <laughs> doing don't. this for a while. And, and is it fundamentally different today than it used to be? Or is this the same stuff with some different details or how how has it evolved? I guess maybe a, a better question. You know, I think, you know, that's a that's a really wonderful question. Um, I think that everybody wants to understand more and they want to be able to uh, have that edge regardless of what you're doing and the problem is consistent regardless of what sector of business you're in is that the data that is being leveraged oftentimes has two uh, crippling factors in any business one is that it consumes way too much resource to acquire. And second, that its quality is not able to be uh, at the level needed to run the analytical uh, process to drive insight out of the information. And so it's this constant struggle uh, around actually trying to read more out of the data tea leaves than is actually there. And I think that's where a lot of, of data technologists and, and um, uh, predictive technologists are struggling because they are being pressed to drive more outcome out of the, the analytical and, and AI and ML packages that are, that are being deployed. Um, but the data just isn't meeting the demand and the process of gathering it is taking away from the, the opportunity to use it. You touched on something there that I will I will guess I guess I should just admit it's a trigger item for me because the notion of data quality and the need to drive certain analysis and, and analytics and, and resulting actions and all of that, we we tend to not in most organizations today have a good enough sense of what data quality really is and, and whether or not it's suitable for uh, the needs that we have. And I can get on my data quality soapbox, which is actually not what I want to do right now. What I want to do <laughs> is say that I feel like we are missing some key skills, because like you mentioned, we have an intense demand at every level of an organization to be data-driven for things. We need to use data. We need to analyze data. We need to find opportunities. We need to take action. Mm -hmm. But I fear that oftentimes we are not listening to what the data says to us. We have an idea in our mind, and then we go and find the data to support that. And we're trying to find, you know, the answer that we already have come to in the data that we're looking at, as opposed to analyzing the data to figure out where we need to go. And, and I think there's countless examples of that. And I think that 
that unlocks a whole bunch of avenues of, of concern where we can talk about bias. And I think bias mm-hmm. is an area that you have a particular perspective yes. on. But then we can yep. also talk about the just the nature of not realizing what we are doing wrong. Like it's not intentional that we're trying to prove a point we've already made. It's just so happens that we don't have, perhaps it's, it's like the statistical foundation to understand how to analyze data in an appropriate way. We're so used to looking at dashboards and, and other things that kind of serve up data to us. Oh, if this number's going up, it's good. If it's going down, it's bad. We, we talk about KPIs and, and all of that. So I want to take a little bit of time to break some of these, these things down. But let's start with bias, because I think bias mm. is a great launching off point for some of these other challenges as well. Can you talk about what, what these challenges around bias really are? Right. So, you know, part of our practice is to really understand the, uh, the capability of a business to execute an idea, right? Um, one of the wonderful things out there is that um, innovation has really firmly taken hold within most businesses. And uh, fortunately, that adoption and, and that nurturing of that um, talent or that, that desire um, has really created a fountain of uh, opportunity for companies and, uh, and different entities. The gap that happens next is like you go from idea, right? And then you go through this vetting process right, at, the, at the leadership level, right? So the listener, you know, I'm sure, you know, you listener have been through this in this process where you're either participating in it or watching it happen where, you know, that you've got all of the financial models that are taking a look at the viability of it. Is it going to be able to produce the ROI or the value that needs to happen? Um, and a lot of the, the considerations around that business case and that, that financial model. And so then there is a decision that's made. And for many, that decision feels like it's an arbitrary decision. And this package comes over a wall, lands on a, a program project manager's desk, and they're expected to execute on that idea. And the challenge is that, you know, nobody asked the question or took a look at the analysis and saying, regardless of how good the idea is, can we actually deliver? Can we do this? And there are very few companies in the world, I would say probably the top 10 in the S&P 500, who can muscle through an idea that is not aligned well with their execution capability, because they can just pour resource on it, right? And they can, they can literally jam it to uh, completion, right? And so it may be 3x more expensive or, you know, two times, you know, longer than they anticipated, but they'll get it there, right? Simply by brute force. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of us, <laughs> the, other, the 99% are left with the, the finessing job of trying to figure out how to do damage control from day one. And this is where you see the drop off. This is where the opportunities start to fall off and you start to see wonderful ideas, great potential beginning to uh, be waylaid by the consequences of poor alignment of capability to the idea. And what that fundamentally means is that, you know, there are some very simple, uh, um, you know, elements around this is that 
is that today's business, anybody's business, my business, your business, the listener's business, is aligned largely to today's operating model. And that operating model today is is tuned to oper- to optimize operations, right? You want a lower cost of operations. You want to produce the highest value possible. The misunderstanding is that that model is adaptable to virtually any innovation or next shift in the business capability. And when you begin to introduce that next iteration of business, this is where leaders need to really pay attention is, do we really have the capability to do this? It, it's, it's, it's really where bias starts to take over, where we start to ignore a lot of the, the potential for uh, the signs that, you know, things are not going to go well and our, our, uh, our egos take over uh, in terms of what that potential is. And, and this is where we focus one of our practice areas is really being able to calculate what is that alignment, produce a number, like almost like a credit, credit score for execution, mm-hmm. tell you uh, exactly where the gaps are and how to correct them. And that tends to, when, when our customers tend to use that element, and I'm not pressing product here, it's, it's more to the effect of just giving an idea to the listener, you know, that this is, is viable. Uh, they tend to find a, a 50% acceleration to market at two, about two-thirds the cost because they're eliminating a lot of the bias-based elements in there that uh, tend to derail uh, an engagement, some kind of a, uh, an execution of a product, uh, uh, an acquisition, a, a, a machine learning AI implementation, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, those things get derailed not by the technical side, but they get derailed by the factors that we don't have control over and the things that we don't see and the assumptions that are made in the decision process. So you, you've, you're illustrating something that I had not really been thinking about previously. Like even in my example of the analytics bias and when we're doing um, that kind of information work, it, it, it's where I always go to when I think about data and analytics and, and all that. But what you're talking about, it sounds like you're you're identifying and overcoming biases in the operations of organizations themselves. Yes. As a result of correcting this, which I think is a, yes. it's it's a fine point conceptually, but it's an incredibly important point in terms of the mm-hmm. outcomes that you're driving with it. Because in mm-hmm. in your world, you are much closer to what is happening today in a business versus, hey, I have this idea for this new thing that we could go into, but it's still many abstractions, many layers removed from business outcome. Whereas what you're talking about, much, much closer, because you're talking about the execution of an ongoing business process, a business avenue, a business line that an organization is is working with right now. Am I, am I hearing you correctly on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it's very, again, it's very, very fundamental. You know, it's, it's for, again, for the listener, think of the, your favorite sports team, if you like sports at all. Right? Um, and why doesn't that team win the championship every year? Right. Because if, if they know what the best practice is and they know exactly what to do and the last time they did it, they did it great. They should be able to repeat that model over and over and over again. And it's absolutely accurate. Why doesn't that happen? Why doesn't that product release that was done last year, last month, last quarter, you've got the formula. Why doesn't it go smoothly every single time? And the answer really fundamentally is that each scenario is 
uh, unique within itself. And it has its own uh, operational challenges in that context. And so as a result, you need to understand what are the factors that are going to affect that deployment. Uh, again, whether you're integrating an acquisition, rolling out AI, ML, whether you're uh, implementing a new product, whatever it may be. And it's that bias-driven decision-making. It's, oh, we've done this so many times in the past. We know exactly what's going to happen. It's like, well, not really, right? And, and, and what I always emphasize in, in conversations like these is that it's, it's not IT's fault. It's not the technical people's fault, right? The products are proven. It, it, the skill sets are there. Yeah, there's going to be some variability, but at the end of the day, it's not their fault. What it is is that there are too many uh, uncontrollable, uninfluenceable uh, conditions within the business itself that can be identified prior to engaging your effort that can be trued up and aligned if you just simply go out, collect the data, measure it, and do it quickly, run the alignment quickly, that really facilitates speed to market. And that's what smarter players are doing today. And that's why you're seeing some entities that are truly able to succeed. And it's, it's you know, and, and I catch a, a little bit of flack around this sometimes, is that it's not about the people, right? Because the people only have so much influence. Like, you, you know, it's it's your skill set can only do so much you have to be able to really affect those those external factors um and you know it's when you know sometimes i also tell folks it's it's when you send your kid out driving for the first time by themselves right you know like you know, what what is it that what is it your parents told you and then you tell your kids right is that well it's not you it's the other people driving right <laughs> so it's the same thing in, in these kinds of decision models right it's not necessarily you it's the other people who are influencing what you're trying to get done Sure. And, and yeah, and, and many, I mean, in large organizations, whether you're talking like tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of employees, it's like any individual only can impact so many things. And it's mm -hmm. that, you know, if, if we're left to everyone doing their best in mm -hmm. an uncoordinated way at scale, a fair amount of the effort is just naturally going to offset because you're going to be pulling in opposite directions, meaning and intending fully good things to happen. But with the lack of coordination and consistency, you will inevitably have these frictions that are just fighting themselves. And so what mm -hmm. this, what I'm hearing is that the, a lot of this stuff comes back to, you know, process design and strategic alignment amongst all actors, yes. regardless of their level of independence, so yes. that they are impacting and, and, and directing the, the operations and, and the, um, the business activities in, the, in a consistent way, in a, in a, in a productive way, and mm -hmm. eliminate some, eliminating some of those inefficiencies, those frictions that naturally occur in large organizations. By doing so, you're naturally going to improve the cost efficiency. You're going to improve the, the, the return on investment because you're not fighting against yourselves unwittingly just because something hasn't been well understood or defined or measured. Um, mm -hmm. is, am I, am I hearing this right? Or am I, am I missing? Cause I'm trying to just paraphrase in ways I can understand because <laughs> these are, are big complex, you know, things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, you know, again, I kind of, I, I draw it down to conceptually, you know, um, 
when you're getting, let me, let me put it here in, in, into a different context. When decision makers are looking to engage in an activity within a business, right? Uh, I often refer to them in, in the leadership space as the banker of the business, mm -hmm. right? Uh, your operations strategy people are coming to you and saying, look, in order for us to hit our growth targets or developmental targets to, to do the things we want to do, we need you to invest into this project, this effort, this, in, this initiative, this acquisition, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And you are making a lending decision with a rate of return. And the difficulty today is that in the majority of businesses, that lending decision is made with a business case and a set of financials. And I can tell you that if you present me with any idea in the moment, I can write you a business case that makes it look amazing or makes it look horrible. And I can let produce a set of financials that would make you drool or, you know, you can't run away fast enough from it. So it's all bias-driven. It's all bias-driven decision-making. Then it's bias-driven decision-making around whether you can actually do it. And the reality is you need that credit check. You need that credit score, right? Because the credit score, in essence, when you're buying a home, boat, car, whatever, the only thing it's really telling the bank is, are you good at repaying the loan? Like, are you, when you borrow money, can you pay it back? And that same kind of score needs to be happening in operations in the sense that if you lend operations $10 million, right, which is the average price tag for an AI first cut deployment, right, can they pay it back? Can they produce the rate of return on that investment in the business? And to do that, you have to filter out the bias. You have to filter out those things that say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, when we get there, we'll figure it out. We'll get it over with, you know, and I can almost hear the eyes rolling right now as people are listening to it. You know, it's like, oh, how many times I've been in that position? And so that's step number one. I mean, fundamentally, you have to be able to really understand where those gaps in alignment exist in operations. So operations can be tuned, dialed in, and bolstered to be able to support the idea and the initiative in and of itself, right? Step number two, which is the thing that typically doesn't get talked about, um, is how utterly demoralizing it is to a workforce when you are continuously handed initiatives that you cannot succeed in, right? And so, you know, right now in the market, um, at the time that we're having this conversation, there is a tremendous level of attrition out of larger companies, because the targets are unrealistic. The winning isn't there at the level. Mm -hmm. How much loss can a you know, high-performing individual take? And at the end of the day, are leaders setting up their teams to succeed? And so it's this cascading effect, right? So that's, that's the fundamental of it. And then are you really gathering the right data in the right way to support that kind of analysis to be able to reach those conclusions? Or are you spitballing and say, well, my gut is telling me this, you know, your gut, your gut, you know, gives you some guidance, but it is, <laughs> it is not the ultimate uh, truth in a scenario. And that's really what we try to emphasize. So I'm, I'm inferring from the, the, the notion of the REM score. And I'm mm -hmm. really curious to understand how that in particular came into existence and, and what you can tell us about. But it sounds to me like there's some consistent metrics that you're going to use to create this score, to understand 
how this organization is struggling or or where they they fit like it 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 is to me in my mind like a, a credit score of the efficiency of your operations of of the way you're working in your organization is is that what that really is or am, am, am well, misinterpreting it's a, it, no no not at all i mean it's a credit score in alignment between operations and the strategic initiative that you are about to undertake, okay. right? Because it's, I mean, you know, how many times have you been put in a position where you're you're sitting in a conversation, you've been brought into a team, everybody's very excited, the person rolls out the statement of work that, that you're about to do, and you're looking at it going, what? <laughs> uh, and when are we supposed to get this done and what is it supposed to produce and why is it supposed to produce it and how is it supposed and and then you're just sitting there trying to sort through all the details and go through it and the reality is you know that there's more to the puzzle um but you don't have a way to quantify it there's no way to articulate yeah. it so that it's um um, not a hot mess. And, and that's really what we're talking to, right? Is the fact that those, the, the data, the insight that you need, the data of that insight is buried in your company right now. And it's a matter of harvesting it and articulating it in a way that gives you feedback. And we use a method that runs uh, through behavioral economics um, and puts it into what we call a swarm intelligence engine that allows you to then uh, guide that decision practice to, uh, in essence, steer towards what out of 14 domains of different measurement of impact, which are the, the ones that are really going to affect the type of initiative you want to do and what can you do to correct them. And so in doing that, that's what tends to influence and tip the scale toward um, doing something that's uh, more productive and has a better outcome, if that makes more sense. It, it makes some sense conceptually, but it also sounds like magic to me. And and I wonder, like, what the – how do you compile – You're a, you're a data, data analytics guy. You, you've heard that before, right? You know? Yeah. Like, this sounds like voodoo. Yeah. Well, and, and I wonder and, – because and, I, I imagine – so I have to imagine, like, some of the data that you're going to use to calculate this is going to be – novel data that you're compiling like through surveys or something like that or is it like i just don't know where do you get the data that you can analyze to do this work or, or yeah. how <laughs> it's the yeah it's the one part that i think i mean you're you're echoing what many people ask you know in this in this conversation is that that data is active live data it is not historical data right like as i as i mentioned before because, you know, past success does not predict future success. Yep. And so the thing that uh, we do is we active, we run what's called an active interview that's dynamic and it's driven mm -hmm. through the swarm intelligence process that is steered as actively uh, people are, are entering information, being provided information. Um, it is steering the questions that they're being asked. And, and the way that we have structured this is basically modeled after, you know, business analysts that have gone in and run these interviews in the past and give me this information. Oh, well, if this, then ask me this question. And then if that, ask me this question and so on and so forth. Yeah. And so we have, you know, over 10,000 permutations of those types of, of questions that we then link through this dynamic engine that really turns uh, 
you know, what people would consider a, a survey, which is static, more into a dynamic element, which is now an interview. And we dive down rabbit holes. And as we're, we're collecting that data, the engine is assessing the depth of information being scored and then redirects into other domains. And uh, fundamentally, that's how we uh, steer that conversation. It's almost a, uh, a machine-to-human conversation about you know, where the areas of concern are. Um, to really aggregate that information and then score it out and provide that feedback. And we have an incredibly high accuracy rate. Um, but most of all, really what it does is it gives you a firm base of understanding of where the blind spots are. And that's, that's really what most people just need. They need that insight a little bit that says, hey, look, this is where that, this is what's going to trigger that cascade of issues. Go look at that. Right, and start to correct that. And when they do that, that's where they find that acceleration capability. That makes a lot of sense to me. So now it doesn't sound like magic. It sounds hard, but it doesn't sound like magic anymore. <laughs> it, is. it took a it's, long, it's, long but time. It, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. instead of my my you know, my brain says survey, ask people questions. It's much more sophisticated than that. But oh, at yeah. the end of the day, yeah. that's where the best insight into that alignment between strategy and, and execution really exists is in people's brains to yep. understand what that situation is, because they're all seeing it from different perspectives. And I think that's where we see, like in the marketing research side, that, that the um, now overuse, but the the popularity of, of net promoter score being this mm -hmm. quantified singular metric right. that takes all of these nuanced individual points of view and resolves them to a number that now we have something to work with quantitatively mm -hmm. and, and can drive mm -hmm. actions from. So that's, that's what in my mind is now a simple view of the kind of thing that you're doing to align strategy uh, and execution is that yeah. now you're able to say, okay, simple concept of net promoter score, but now we're talking about operations versus uh, strategy. How do we, all these different people that are involved with this, what do they interpret their strengths are, our weaknesses are, mm -hmm. and you're going through this dynamic question and answer and, and evaluation overlaid with some advanced analytics, st statistical models, AI models, I, I'm, I'm sure, yeah. to yep. analyze um, you know, what ultimately then becomes a much more um, complicated number to arrive at with this REM score, but it tells us about something that up till now, I mean, that was where I don't hear any kinds of quantification metrics from those kinds of uh, efficiency models. Like you can, you can do operational efficiency and mm -hmm. get quantification about how, how long does it take to produce widgets or how, how well do we um, you know, serve our customers? How, what are our turnaround times on things? But in terms of how that aligns to this forward-looking strategy, to your point, you can't just look at, okay, how do we do over the last six months? It has to be a much more real-time type of, mm -hmm. of analysis. So I think that's really interesting stuff that you can do that. And then I presume take the results of that and then coach the executive teams and the, and the leads of those uh, organizations to evolve some of their processes, evolve how they're working to to do better on that, and then kind of track those changes over time. Is that is that how you engage? Like, right? I mean, you know, it? before yeah, before you start the process of uh, implementation, you know, again, you know, pick your pick your poison, right? You're you're, you're integrating an acquisition, um, right? So if we start to run through the stats, right? Let's look at the foundational stats. If you, if you buy a company, right, 50% of the time that you buy a company, uh, it 
absolutely reduces the value of your company. 30% of the time that you buy a company, it does nothing for you at all. And 20% of the time you buy a company, it actually increases your value. Well, um, how do you make sure that you're in the 20% or how do you grow yourself from 20, 20% to 25%, right? And it comes at the point of integration between the two entities. Mm. And how do you understand that integration process between those two different cultures, those two different processes? Where are the picadillos? Where are the things that are going to clash these two situations operationally in terms of readiness and alignment of capability between those two entities, right? And if you know that and you can cure that, then when you engage the process, you are focused on the meat of the bone, right? You, you are truly looking at what's going on. Same thing with an AI ML implementation, right? If you are really trying to drive that, and this, you know, we all know the statistics around success rates for that, which are, you know, it's early on, it's, you know, has a lot of complexity to it. By neutralizing the bias in the decision process, you can begin to understand. It's like, you know, are you making the uh, the software choice at the right time? You know, are you, you know, does your data support the question you want to ask? And do you know how to ask that question, right? You know, most of the things that we coach strategically on somebody who's looking to do an AI project, as an example, is, you know, are you asking the right question? And does the question start with why? <laughs> <laughs> right and and when you go outside of that now you need to know okay well we're going to run in this implementation you know are do you have all your ducks in a row to be able to do that correctly and it's not just a technical challenge and so the thing that we really advocate for is the fact that that data needs to be collected very fast we typically do it within one to five days through the the virtualization of the engine right so you know you can do it anywhere and we turn that score around in that same amount of time. So, you know, upon completion, the engine scores immediately and provides that detail back. So within five days, let's say that you have an idea you're considering to go, um, you can run a REM score as an example, have that feedback within, you know, one to five days, depending on how available your own people are to participate. Um, and then as a result, you know, you, you, now you have insight and understanding what's in your way, where's the blind spot, what can you do to fix it, how long is it going to take you to fix it, and is it really worth moving forward? Because the, the idea may be amazing, the financials may be amazing, but to get your operations in alignment with that idea is going to take you six months, and you have three-month window to get this thing to production uh, or live in order to generate the value it needs to happen, or the entire business case is going to shift. Is it really worth going through the effort? Well, sometimes it is because you want to learn from it, right? So that's okay, right? But you go in eyes wide open and you're making decisions based on, you know, better intelligence. And so as a result, you have more effective results from the dollars that you invest. It's really the foundation of it. It's a lot. Yeah, and I, and I imagine <laughs> a lot of times, <laughs> I imagine a lot of times that it's not, you know, do this or don't do this, but it may point to gradients of, hey, there's some risk in this particular aspect of what you're um, trying to do. Mm -hmm. Be aware, you know, be deliberate about that and, and manage that. This can give you an ability to see where are the things that are likely going to cause us challenges or where are we going to naturally run into a wall in six months mm -hmm. if we're not being thoughtful about it now. So I see and more likely than not, it's not going to be a technical issue. Yeah. 
Okay. It, I mean, the reality is that you are going to run into technical issues, but you know, all I can offer you at this point in terms of insight is the fact that the majority of the reasons why these efforts don't pan out has very little to nothing to do with the technical uh, capabilities of, of within your business or the software that you're choosing. It's just, that's that not sense. the reason, but that's who, yeah, who it, always gets blamed. <laughs> if, you're, if you've chosen a software using some sort of process, it's probably good enough if executed well. Like most of the time, a mm -hmm. good idea executed very well is going to be better than a great idea executed poorly. Like there's no right. doubt that it's probably an okay technical solution. There's, there's other, other challenges there. I want to ask because a lot of the focus of our conversation, and I think that like the REM score and, and some of these things, there's a certain critical mass that's necessary for this to all kind of fit together. But are there, are there lessons or um, good takeaways from this whole process that you've, you've talked about with very large organizations? Does this play at the mid-size level or the small level or, or micro scale for very small organizations or anything we can give those folks that may be the entrepreneurs out there that are saying, wow, I wish I could do this REM score thing, but I've only got like three people and, you know, mm -hmm. they just fully believe that what we're doing is, is correct because they made the strategy. Like, yeah, does it translate the limitation at the small scale? Yeah, the limitation at the micro scale, to your point, is that it's... You know, if for those, you know, uh, uh, data nerds and tech and statistical nerds out there, right, is that you have to have a good enough sample size of data coming in in order to justify or validate, you know, the, the calculation, right? So at the micro scale, that's going to be the biggest challenge is like, do you have enough? Because otherwise it just turns into an opinion, right? And we're no better off within the context, right? So that's the, that's the big uh, limitation within a, a smaller entity. Now, how you increase your sample size, which is the scary part, is that if you have something that you want to do, you expand your data pool or your participant pool into uh, uh, vendors, into partners, into customers, into distributors, into other entities outside of your business to help influence that. Uh, and create a, a healthier data pool in that context. Realistically, within the context of what we talk to, it's that medium to larger entity uh, that you know has enough data points, and they you know they're still in that ninety nine percent of the of the companies out there that have to get it right. You know the 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 challenge we have in today's marketplace, and especially after the twenty twenty crisis, is that the tolerance for bad ideas, especially transformational ideas, has a high penalty associated to failure. And there just isn't that forgiveness for going down that road and not having it, you know, in alignment and ready to go. Um, either forgiveness internally from investors, from marketplace or customers. And so uh, reputational damage is magnified. Um, you know, 2020 revealed the fact that all of these transformation efforts that were out there that, you know, people are saying, oh, yeah, we're doing great, 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 you know, turned around to turn the light switch on and nothing. Hmm. And that was, you know, that now is tied, that that idea of, of transformation is now permanently tied in, uh, to the, you know, to the real viability of, you know, yeah, is this the same as what you were talking about before?
And so it, it has a personal consequence to, to, you know, the listener right now. It's like, you're hanging your hat on this effort that you want to do. Um, do you really know, or are you going to go into damage control day two, trying to just simply recover? Um, and then you go into, you know, all of, all of the, the different techniques to try to salvage something. And is that really what you want to spend your time on? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it, when you rather just focus on really optimizing the success of what your, your idea is about, um, and that's where it is. Yeah. Well, and, and to kind of put a bow on this, I, I want to, we've talked a lot about aligning the execution and obviously like putting energy into the execution and the alignment of the execution with the strategy and, and, you know, the context of, of the organization. But if I had, if I'm, if I'm a senior leader in an organization and I have a hundred units of effort, how mm-hmm. much of that effort should I be putting towards strategy versus the execution of that strategy? Like how, where does that balance lie or mm-hmm. how much does an underinvestment in execution hurt strategy or how much does an underinvestment in strategy hurt execution? Well, I think that you have to bifurcate your thinking in a little bit of a, of a context in the sense that there is what gets deeply misunderstood many times is execution success gets blended with idea success. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'll give you an example, right? Um, there was a time that, uh, the Dell wanted to sell high end computers at Walmart and they had set up this entire kiosk for it. And distribution channel was there. The salespeople were there. The product was there. All of it worked really, really well. Was it executed correctly? Absolutely. The idea was awful, <laughs> right? I mean, honestly, who's going to go? If you look at your Walmart profile, that's not the place that people are going to go to to buy a high-end Dell, right? So yeah. that is an idea failure, not an execution failure. But I talk to a lot of corporate strategists, and they bring that they bring that case study up as execution failure. And I'm like, no, that's not execution failure. That is idea failure, right? Mm-hmm. So when you look at the quantification in terms of how, she, how you should divide your attention, you know, it's, um, it's a tough answer for me. You know, I, I don't want to mm-hmm. necessarily give it a, a specific answer, but understand that, you know, you have to believe in the idea and there is, uh, you know, it's uh uh, there's a lot of factors in terms of idea success, you know, how well your PR and marketing efforts are, your distribution channels are, your go-to-market, your total addressable market, all of those VC-type slides that you want to look at, right, that are saying, you know, this is the viability of what you're doing, right? And that's that, that front-end step. The second step is now does your operation have the capacity to deliver it? And that's where the rubber meets the road. And so I think that you have to, in some way, pay equal amount of attention to strategy development and strategy understanding against, do you have the cap, you know, the cap, the capacity and the capability to, to actually do the idea? And if you don't, do you have the capital to re-engineer and do that and the time to do that? And if you don't, then, you know, you really got to let it go because at the end of the day, you're going to submarine a whole bunch of people and process and technology into something that's never going to materialize. And what does that really do for your business at the end of the day? Yeah. Wise words. We're almost out of time. In the in the last minute or so that we have, do you have any 
kind of Cliff's Notes advice for those folks that are out there. And I think we've covered a lot of it in the con- in the context of the conversation that we had and, and the, the notion of, you know, bad ideas are not saved by good execution, I think is a right. good, um, good lesson for us all to learn. Um, but I think the, the converse of, hey, execution makes it so that even decent ideas, good ideas can be wildly successful. Um, anything else you want to add uh, before we close out? You know, what I would do is, is I would offer to summarize it in this context. One, think of your, you know, if you're a decision maker, if you're a leader decision maker within the business, think of yourself as a banker of your business. You are giving out a loan into an operating unit that's going to go do something. Can they repay that loan? Right. Number one. Number two, to understand that you need to harvest and analyze the data within your existing business right now. Not historical data, not some consultant's data that comes from industry trends and all that kind of stuff. You have to look at yourself. You have to harvest that data and analyze it. You have to do that harvesting and analyzing in a very, very short order because your conditions are changing continuously, right? You have people coming and going. You have priorities being reset. You have market impacts that are are fluctuating. Priorities are shifting, all those kinds of things. And then really fourth, once you take a look at that, Run the run the correction action around alignment between uh, execution capability, operational capability, and the idea um, in a in a very uh, direct, focused way. So when you engage the effort, you have absolute alignment, and you're executing, like I said, up to twice as fast. You're getting to market twice as fast in doing that. Um, and, you know, really in doing that, you're going to start to see a, a lot of other consequential uh, byproduct value coming into the business in the sense that your people are learning to win more. Your retention rate for your staff is going to be higher. Morale is going to be higher. The understanding of how to deliver success is going to increase and so on and so on. So it's it's in, in, in a very simple way. I think that's hopefully what you know, the listener took away from, from today's conversation if, if they're, if they're still here. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I'm sure they're still here. This has been a, a riveting conversation. Like so many of our, our conversations here, it has absolutely flown by, but Alex, thank you for, for being on the show today and, and sharing your wisdom with folks. This has been awesome. Oh, thank you so much. You know, you have a wonderful, wonderful podcast and um, uh, it's a real treat to be here. I appreciate that. And and thank you all for joining us today. As always, you'll find more information about our guests and links in the show notes. Go to dataleadershiplessons.com to subscribe and check out past episodes and accelerate your journey with training at dataleadershiptraining.com. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact. 